we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 82 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 8th of February 2017. With me... Scott, the Velvet Glove, how are you, Scott? Yeah, I'm really well, thanks, Trevor. How's yourself? I'm excited, Scott. You're excited? Why is mm. that? The next three weeks, the Catholic Church is going to get a <laughs> grilling at the Royal Commission. Like, like they've probably never been grilled before. This, this Scott, is, this is the Inquisition in reverse. It's going to be great. It is going to be great, and I think the church has. Um, well, you only had to look at the uh, video message that uh, the archbishop sent out to schools and all that sort of stuff. When he and he also warned parishioners to be prepared for a final grim warning and all that sort of stuff. Mm. I think they realised that um, all bets are off, the gloves are off, and that their bullshit isn't going to resonate with anyone. Well, I don't know if they realise it, but they're just running a bit of spin. So, dear listener, knowing that they had three weeks of grilling ahead of them, the Royal Commission is just going to be looking at the systems and policies and the structure of the Catholic Church. So rather than specific instances of abuse, it's now going to be looking at issues such as celibacy and the confessional and the way the church has responded to the allegations and and what what the church as a system is doing and um so the church uh issued a, a letter which was read out at various parishes and um basically saying we're in for a tough few weeks we're very ashamed of what's happened and you know hopefully at the end of the day, we will improve and blah, blah, blah. So a bit of a, just a, uh, it's just a start of spin, Scott, yeah, I reckon. It was, it was a call to the arms and that sort of stuff. Mm. And they, uh, they really have left their run too late, haven't they? Mm. In, in, in terms of, um, unless you're really one of the hardcore faithful, then... I don't think that you're going to listen to it. You know, I think you're going to just walk away from it. Um, now, I can't tell you because I haven't been inside the church, but I've noticed on Saturday night, uh, the church that's not far from me, mm. when I drive down past there to go out to Chinese with the better half, mm. I've noticed the crowds aren't there, you know, really? like they once were. Yeah. They really have dropped away quite a lot. But you know what, Scott? It doesn't matter. They've got all the schools, so <laughs> they're still indoctrinating kids at a young age. They've still got, yeah. they've still got, you know, so many members of our cabinet are Catholic. I mean, where it counts is, um, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, rugby league. It doesn't matter how many people go to the game, how many people are watching on TV. You know, is where they get their ratings and their advertising money from. So yeah, that's true. You um, know, that that is very true. But I really do think that um, 
I just feel that this could be the uh, nail in the coffin. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, few it, it's probably say. it's probably not the last nail in the coffin, but it is certainly a nail in the coffin. Yeah. Mm. So, a uh, few reports that have come out in the lead up to these few weeks. Um, Catholic Church responsible for four thousand four hundred and forty-four victims. Yeah, and this was sickening, wasn't it? So a few of the stats. 30% of all of the private sessions the Royal Commission has held um, have related to the Catholic Church. Well, 37% of all private sessions. So yeah. what did I say? Yes, 37. You said 30, yeah. Okay, 37. Average age of victims, 10 and a half for girls, 11 and a half for boys. Various religious subsets of the Catholic faith um, are worse than others. Um one of the orders was found that 40% of religious brothers are believed to have abused children. What a phenomenal... That was the St. John of God brothers, um, where 40% of religious brothers are believed to have been child abusers. Um, still in that sort of... Uh, that was a sickening number, is. wasn't it? But you yeah, know what? It was, and they were an order that ran schools, weren't they? I don't know. I, I'd, I'd never heard of them. Um, okay. And people might think, oh, they're just probably just a strange little group with half a dozen sort of members. I don't know. But I've mm. certainly heard of the Christian Brothers because I went to a Christian Brothers school and there's mm-hmm. plenty of them. The statistic is that 22% of Christian Brothers uh, were alleged perpetrators. Maris Brothers, that's another one that everyone's heard of, at least mm-hmm. in my circles, because I live not far from Ashgrove at the biggest Maris Brothers college uh, where that is. 20% of Maris Brothers alleged perpetrators. One in five of these groups. God, if you... There was no escaping them. Uh, if you were a vulnerable kid, they were not going to miss you, were they, with those sorts no, of numbers? No, it's... It's really shocking, really, you know. Mm. 22% of Christian brothers, wow. 20% of Maris brothers. Um, so... You get down further, 32% were religious brothers, 30% were priests, 29% were lay people, and 5% were religious sisters. Yes. You know, even the nuns couldn't keep their hands off kids, apparently. Yes, yes, of the perpetrators, that's right, that were identified, yes. Other things are the uh, um, these figures were revealed by senior counsel assisting Gail Furness, SC. Um, she also revealed that the Holy See had refused to hand over documents involving Australian priests accused of abuse. The Holy See responded on the 1st of July 2014 that it was neither possible nor appropriate to provide the information requested. And she said that responses from Catholic diocese and orders across the country were depressingly similar. So for all their talk of cooperating and turning over a new leaf, the council assisting the commission is saying that the Holy See just flat out refused as it was not appropriate in their view. Not appropriate in their view. What, what was it going to do? Was it going to um, shine a light on them or something like that? You know, it's mm. it really is sickening. You know, mm. and this this in my view um, goes to the the lie that uh, the Catholic Church said that 
it was only a few individuals and all that sort of stuff. Mm. This proves it that it was a large scale endeavor almost mm. and that the cover-up goes right to the top mm. the vatican clearly has documents that they've refused to hand over to the royal commission mm. for no good reason well so, apparently no yeah so again council assisting says children were ignored or worse punished allegations were not investigated priests and religious brothers were moved the parishes or communities to which they were moved knew nothing of their past documents were not kept or they were destroyed secrecy prevailed as did cover-ups mm. the final three weeks this is uh, just uh, the commentator here the final three weeks are expected to focus on cultural causes of the offending the current child protection policies of the church and the way it has responded to the Royal Commission case studies so far. Based on what the council assisting has said, it's going to be damning um, about the Catholic Church. Yeah, absolutely, and it bloody well should be too. Mm. You know, it's clear that they've known about it. It's clear that it's gone right through to the top and no one gave a toss. Mm. So 7% of Catholic priests... Scott, you remember that movie Spotlight, which was about the Boston Globe? Yeah, and that was really good, wasn't it? It was a great movie. If you haven't seen it, yeah. listener. Um, and in that, they sort of discovered some instances of child abuse and they spoke to some sort of expert on it who said to them, well, the statistics are um, about 6% of all priests are abusers, so keep looking and you'll find more. And... Um, and I'm pretty sure it was 6% and that the Boston Globe found 10% were abusers. Mm. So this figure of 7% of Australian Catholic priests is right in the ballpark of <laughs> world experience. Yeah, somewhere between the 6 and 10%, yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. It's really, um, the more you read it, the more it makes my blood boil. It really does. You know, it, it's really sickening. One of the issues to be examined by the Royal Commission over the next few weeks will be that of the use of confession. So, dear listener, in the Catholic system, you trot along to a priest uh, in a darkened cubicle. Fortunately, you're separated from them physically by a wall. Otherwise, (laughs) well, I guess in some instances, some priests have said, come around the other side, you know, probably. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise, but... Thankfully, in most instances, there's a wall between you and the priest, so he can't get his grubby little fingers on you, and you (laughs) confess your sins, and he gives you then absolution, and in theory, if you're truly repentant, and you walked out the door and were hit by a bus, you'd go straight to heaven. That's the the cell job that is given to you as a young Catholic. Uh, That's what I was taught. Um, And... uh, Of course, the priests maintain that anything said to them in the confessional, uh, they couldn't possibly be required to produce in a court of law. So if if the police suspected uh, somebody had confessed to a priest in the confessional and pulled the priest up onto the witness stand, he would say, well, uh, I'm under a a religious obligation not to say, not to reveal what's happened. And let's remember, folks, this is just gook mumbo-jumbo, and they've decided for themselves that they're not going to comply with authorities. And 
it will be very interesting to see whether the Royal Commission comes down with a recommendation that says any priest relying on that should be thrown in the slammer for contempt of court because it's entirely possible that they will well, and they should. It really wouldn't surprise me if that's the way the Royal Commission goes. And frankly, it should. You know, I, I think you, you've hit the nail right on the head. It's... um. It, it, the numbers are there. You can't um, you can't trust them to keep house themselves. Mm. You know, but, it's it's appalling. But given an example in this article, the former Victorian priest Paul David Ryan jailed in two thousand and six for eighteen months for indecently assaulting one victim, revealed during a two thousand and fifteen private hearing that he confessed his sexual activity with adolescent boys to his confessor on multiple occasions. Uh, asked if that was the way he reconciled his actions with God, he said, yes, well, I thought I was. So basically, he was he was abusing boys, confessing, and then feeling good about himself. Uh, um, so the Royal Commission's going to look at that. Um, now, we've referred previously, Scott, to the Truth, Justice and Healing Council, yeah. which is the group that's been created to respond to the Commission on behalf of the Church. And their spokesperson, Francis Sullivan, um, believed there was no public evidence before the Commission of someone actually confessing a crime of child sexual abuse under the seal of confession. When Francis Sullivan was alerted to Ryan's testimony, Sullivan described it as an absolute abuse of the sacrament. So at the one hand, Sullivan says, oh, that's never happened, that somebody's confessed. And then they've gone, well, actually, it has in the case of Paul David Ryan. And Francis Sullivan has gone, huh, oh, well, that's just an abuse of the system. <laughs> and there was another character. If, if you don't have the system there in the first place, then no one can abuse it. Yes, exactly. You know. and, and, and how's this for an abuse of the system? I'd never considered this before, but Melbourne pedophile Father Victor Gabriel Rubio used a confessional situation to take out his confessor who had been alerted by one of the priest's victims. So, uh, quote from um, Philip O'Donnell, I gave absolution, and as he walked out the door, he laughed at me former priest Philip O'Donnell told a 2015 hearing. In other words, he made sure I couldn't speak to anyone. I felt totally entrapped by that situation. What a cunning evil. He's, he's heard that this priest is aware of his activity, so he's gone to confess to him to, to then force him to be silent. Outrageous. It is outrageous, isn't it? And, you know, it's... You know, it, when you hear stuff like that, you just realise then and there that it's got to change. It, it's got to be um, opened up yep. so that you can't have situations like this again in the future. And for all the talk, you know, the, the, the Catholics will scream like banshees that they couldn't possibly change the system, but then they'll also be screaming that they've learnt the lessons of the past and they're now much better corporate citizens. Well, you can't have both. No, you can't. Yeah. So, um, so that will be interesting, Scott, to see uh, how that develops over the next three weeks. I'm really looking forward to them getting grilled over that. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Speaking of grillings, apparently Donald Trump 
gave Malcolm Turnbull a bit of a grilling and <laughs> told him it was the worst phone call he'd had all day. Well, you know, it's um, it really is hard to uh, it really is hard not to back your own prime minister when he's in a situation like that, is it? You know, mm. it's um, you think to yourself, no, Malcolm's fine. You know, it's um, I found it um, the reports were a little bit ridiculous in that um, it was the phone call was scheduled to last an hour and it was cut short after twenty five minutes. Mm. And in that phone call, there was a um, there was allegedly a frank exchange of views between the two sides, mm. and then Donald Trump hung up on him. That's mm. the allegation. Mm. And I found that really uh, petulant uh, from Trump's point of view. It was really um, a really it's, petulant. It's entirely in keeping with these. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. It's it's definitely in keeping about what you know about him, but it's um it was very churlish, I thought. Anyway, well, here's an article from the Guardian titled "The U.S. Needs Australia," whether Donald Trump knows it or not, and suggesting that perhaps the U.S. needs us more than we need them. And mm. I like this article. Um, uh, different parts here. It says while well, that phone call won't end any alliance it should be a sign that things must change and I think that would be great because we definitely need to pull away from the US and stop being its lapdog for every conflict that it wants to create around the world but on other issues it says that um, the US is important to our economy it's our third biggest trading partner but it's a distant third the amount of trade that we do with the US is roughly worth about 30% of our trade with China. So it's a long way down the track. And the thing is that we import more than we export. So the risk is for the US. Exactly. If, yeah. if, if there's a, you know, a freezing or, a, or a, a cold winter over our our trade with the US, it's actually going to hurt the US more than it's going to hurt us. And yeah. um, whereas with China... You know, we actually export more than we import, which is interesting. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, we, thought. That just goes to show all that cheap Chinese stuff is so cheap that, in fact, our exports of, oh, well, I guess minerals and stuff is well, that, what that, gets that's, us over the that's line. What, that's what it is that gets us over the line. It's the um, minerals and the um, agricultural goods and that sort of stuff that we do ship to China. Hmm. Mm. Um, so, as we previously noted, Scott, since World War II, as is often noted, we have fought alongside the US in every major war. Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf, Afghanistan, Iraq, and now Islamic State. And um, it does not surprise that Donald Trump wouldn't be aware of our, you know, what we've been doing with the US over time. Like, you just don't expect anything from him. But you, you, you don't expect you don't expect him to keep that in mind, yeah. No, in order even to know about it, because mm, exactly who he is, you wouldn't expect it. But you would have thought that a former Secretary of Defense would have been aware of it. Mm -hmm. And Robert McNamara, U.S. Secretary of Defense from sixty-one <laughs> to sixty-eight, in a documentary called "The Fog of War." said that the U.S. should have realised its cause in Vietnam was wrong because, quote, none of our allies supported us, not Japan, not Germany, not Britain or France. 
And the writer of this article makes the comment, none? That's a pretty sharp slap to the face of nearly 60,000 Australian men and women who served in the Vietnam War, let alone 521 who died. So even a Secretary of Defence can't remember our involvement in the Vietnam Mm. War. God's sake. You know, really, Turnbull could have said to Trump, well, you know all that stuff you got at Pine Gap? You've got two weeks. Get rid of it. And... Uh, well, he you know, didn't all those Marines he didn't, yeah, he, he, he didn't, yeah. Pull them out. We don't exactly, want exactly. You know, and he could have, he could have said, you know, you can forget any um, freedom of navigation movements, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then when Trump had hung up and that sort of stuff, and then he'd come in, then he'd got his defence secretary in here, and they said, oh, this is what those bloody idiot Australians have just said to me. Mm. And then he would have sat down and said, uh, Mr. President, we've got a problem. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then, and then they would have said, oh. And then he would have been back on the phone and then he would have said, oh, those 1,200, they can come tomorrow. Don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll take them all. Mm. It might have been an overreaction, but it would have been a great reaction to say, well, you know, if you don't count our relationship as being valid, then come and gather all your stuff from Pine Gap and take it all home. It just... Mm. What a signal that would have sent, and the rest of the world would have cheered. Could you imagine? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So the article makes the point that um, there's very little Trump could threaten us with, and in fact we might have more threats that we could levy at him. So that's an interesting take on that. Mm. Mm. Scott, essential report. Current okay. Tea Party preferred, what would you say it is? Um, they sort of mirror the um, news poll don't they and that was 54 to 46 this week right uh 53 47 spot on scott very good <laughs> very good scott uh they've asked australians what they think of uh donald trump's ban on muslims entering the u.s well from seven okay the question is the US President Donald Trump has temporarily banned people from seven Muslim countries from entering the United States. Do you approve or disapprove of this ban? Asking Australians. What do you reckon? Approval and disapproval of, of the ban in the US? I'm pulling this out of the air here. Um, probably 60% approve, 40% don't approve. 39% approve. No, 36% approve. 49 disapprove. don't know. Okay. So keep that in mind, dear listener. 36 approve and 49 disapprove. Scott, same question. Would you support or oppose the Australian government instituting a similar ban on people from Muslim countries from entering Australia? Um... What was it, 36% disapprove? It was 36 (laughs) approve and 49 against. It's probably something similar, yeah. 36 approve, 49 against. It actually goes up. 41 approve and 46 oppose. So so it's interesting. An extra 5% were prepared to say that um, that they thought Australia should... uh, He disapproved the US doing it. But he said Australia yeah, but they, should. They should. Should do it. Yeah, that's ridiculous, isn't it? So mm. there you go. Like, for all of the, you know, if you just listen to the media, you'd be convinced 
it would be 80% of Australians are against the ban on mm. these Muslim countries. But in fact, you know, the same ban here in Australia, 41% would be in favour of it, 46 against. That's pretty much 50-50, with mm. 40% don't know. So it's a very divided community on that question, more divided than what than what our media would present, I think. Yeah, exactly. It mm. is... It is a very divisive question, isn't it, Islam? It's um, it does divide people. Mm. Mm. So, um, so that was uh, essential report. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, "Wait, a new podcast"? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Scott, I didn't tell you this one, but I had come across a statistic um, because we're always accused in Australia of being racist. Mm. Um, they've asked people in various countries um, whether having been born in our country is very important for being truly Australian. And they've asked Italians, you know, is being born in Italy very important for being truly Italian? And the same question in Spain and various places like that. So how important is it that you're actually born in the country? And... Uh, in Australia, so this is from Pew Research. Um, well, actually, I'll give you some others. Hungary, 52% said it was important to be truly Hungarian, you had to be born in Hungary. Greece, it was 50%. Italy, 42%. Spain, 34%. UK, 32%. US, 32%. Canada, 21%. UK, I think I said 32 so that's the percentage of people who say it's really important that you are born in the country to be considered truly of that country. Australia, 13. Like, mm. There you go. Like Australians recognise you do not have to be born in this country to be truly Australian. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Japan, 50%. Doesn't mm. surprise. So, um, so that's an interesting statistic when we're sort of accused of being racist in Australia, that we're a good demonstration that we're not, necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Scott, uh, Matt is one of our listeners in WA. He sent mm. a message a few weeks ago. I think I just stumbled across it again. Um, he makes a point that um, the world boycotted South Africa because of, now I'm going to say apartheid, but it's often people say apartheid. What do you say? Apartheid, yeah. Mm. Um, so the world boycotted South Africa because of that discrimination. And mm-hmm. everybody thought, well, that's great. That sort of brought them round. Why don't we do the same to Saudi Arabia? Like, we should. Why they, the way they carry on for women in their country and their activities of exporting their Wahhabism around the world, we should do a similar thing to what we did to South Africa. Absolutely no argument from me. You know, it, it, it would be a um, it would be a very powerful message to them. I mean, I don't think they should be in the G20 or anything like that because you know, 
King, whatever his name was, flew over here. And he, he attended the meetings and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, how many women did you bring over? You know, probably none. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then um, you got the situation that they can't, that women can't drive. Women have to cover themselves when they go out. Women have to do this, 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 and this. And it's absolutely crazy that we haven't boycotted them. You know, it would be... Um, yeah, it would it would it would certainly um, drive up the price of oil mm. and the price of fuel and that sort of stuff would go up. But you know, sure, I don't you have get it from a problem. Somewhere else. Exactly, we could get it from somewhere else. You know, um, the only country that would ignore the boycott would be China. But you know, <laughs> mm. yeah, <laughs> you know. But I mean, start somewhere. I reckon people would be in favour of it. Good idea, Matt. I, I think it would be, and you know, it is. It is very good. It's a great idea. You know, when, when an Iron Fist government comes to power, we'll be we'll be uh, implementing <laughs> that one, Matt. You can be the minister in charge. <laughs> oh, some people might think that's a bit of a crazy idea, but how's this for crazy ideas from One Nation, Scott? Mandatory prenuptial agreements is part of formal policy of of Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party. She has said, before someone goes into a relationship or a marriage, you you know, you you should have a premarital agreement. It would be confidential and lodged with the courts. So that's one of her policies. Look, it probably makes sense, but it's... um it's got to make no sense at all. That's just ridiculous. No, it's no, it's no. You shouldn't make it compulsory. But mm, I don't know. If you're going to get married and that sort of stuff, you probably should have some sort of binding financial agreement in place when you get married. But um, for, uh, it, it depends. Of, for the vast majority of first marriages, people start off with roughly the same amount. Exactly. So it ends up being divided equally anyway. So it's no big deal. Yes. And my understanding is it's actually really difficult to draft a binding prenuptial agreement under our current law. And there's only a small handful of law firms that would attempt to tackle it. It's not an easy job. So uh, actually, there's a good article here from the... She'd have to She'd have to go through and um, reform the, ma- the Marriage Act and that sort of stuff, wouldn't she? She'd yeah. have to um, get in and clean up the um, family law courts. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, there's all sorts of issues because there's different bargaining powers between people um, and it's actually perhaps potentially very damaging for a relationship to have a prenuptial agreement. Mm. And, you know, she's talking about trying to unclog the family court system by creating compulsory paperwork for every marriage and relationship because let's face it you know so before someone goes into even into a relationship you would need one yeah, exactly. So, oh, we've been going out for three weeks now. You know, we better. It's go time get a, for us to a get a binding financial financial agreement. Yeah. You know, when I first read it, I thought to myself, maybe she's onto something. Then I read it again, and I thought, no, that's that's crazy. Yeah. Another. Thing and that- you, you are right. You know, because when you first get married and that sort of stuff, you both basically got exactly the same mm. as each other. Mm. So there's no real issue there. You know. Do you know what I mean? The courts take into account. If one party comes into the marriage with a lot of assets and the other one's got nothing, 
if the marriage is relatively short, then, you know, no children, well, then most of the money will go back to the person who had most of the money to begin with. If the relationship Mm. goes on for a long time, then, you know, it'll be more of a 50-50 at the end of it. You know, if there are kids involved, then uh, who's looking after the kids? So the, the system is set up to take into account those things already. So, um, uh, you know, to, uh, to, and to suggest, well, to suggest that getting everybody to sign prenups is going to solve the situation is just ludicrous because then people will appeal their prenups well and say, well, I was actually coerced at the time and all these other things were happening, so it's not binding. So it's yeah. a crazy idea, Scott. It's just a, it's a nutbag idea from Pauline Hanson. Yeah, I mean, in the interview, she also said she wanted to uh, institute citizen-initiated referenda. Yes. Which is crazy. That is absolute lunacy. You know, it's it's crazy. It will it will result in Australians being at the polls every weekend, and it will yeah, it will be a disaster. In very very dangerous uh, mm. citizen-initiated referenda. And I didn't send this one to you, Scott, but. It's a link to a scholarly legal article, Sydney Law School Legal Studies Research Paper by Anne Twomey. And she's looked around the world, particularly the Californian system, and they've had citizen-initiated referenda for quite some time, and it's been a complete disaster Mm. because... Well, initially people think, oh, that'll be good. The average Joe can get a bit of a say in in laws of what's going to happen. But it quickly comes down to a question of money. And if you've mm. got enough money, you can get the signatures that you require and then uh, to sort of have it put up and then to have it successfully voted on, again, requires money for advertising. And yeah. their experience is that there isn't a a wonderful exchange of ideas and policies and people are fully informed. It's just, you know, both sides with money presenting um, really one-sided views of an issue and ultimately the side with the most money winning. And you have things like tobacco companies and people like that getting involved, um, trying to outspend each other. So you you don't end up with a great result because people aren't fully informed and... It all comes down to money. Uh, you also have arguments where potentially, uh, you know, the majority overrules the minority on various things. So you can have, you know, banning of same-sex marriage because that's what the majority wants. Um, limiting school desegregation. Uh, reducing the rights of defendants in favour of victims, um, ending state affirmative action programs. These are all sorts of things that happened in California. And the other thing that happens is um, is they can is they like double entrench them. So they 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 propose a law and they, they then say that oh, well this law cannot be changed in future except if there's two thirds of voters who vote against it. So <laughs> they effectively pass laws that you just can never get off the books because of this two-thirds law. Yeah. And um, and people take no account of what things actually cost. And the California 
um, government at one stage, in 2009, Scott, they had to issue IOUs to pay short-term debt. They just they had no money. And what happened was there was a um, citizen-initiated law which reduced the maximum rate at which uh, real property could be taxed to 1%. And it rolled the assessment value back to 1975 levels, which completely distorted the tax system and has just sent the California state system broke. Yeah. And they can't fix it. They can't raise money yeah. to do things. Yeah, and that, is the, the, and that is the one thing that I remember from that time was that um, it was in a book that I read. Um, anyway, it was it was a it was a thing uh, former Governor Schwarzenegger was talking about, and he said that it was um, it was all brought about because of the citizen initiated referenda. You know, and he said, you know, who in their right mind would uh, would argue for a tax increase? Mm. No one. Mm. You know, so you can't blame people for voting it down but mm. it is it is ridiculous when, when it gets out of hand like that i mean stupid rules like the three strikes and you're in jail rule that was came about in california from from citizen initiated referenda mm. and you know three minor little drug convictions and you're you're in jail you're, you're sitting you're sitting the slammer it's crazy so the prison population just exploded and the budget couldn't cope with it um, mm. So, uh, so yeah. So that idea from Pauline Hanson of citizen-initiated referenda is is completely wacky. Mm-hmm. And she hasn't gone into the detail of it, but she's talking about axing the GST and considering a flat two percent tax rate. I don't know what that entails, but based on the the it's mandatory probably... prenup and the citizen-initiated referenda, it it it's probably just as wacky, Scott. Well, the two percent, I think, was um, I think it was it harks back to J.B. Oki Peterson's day when he right. said that he was running, when he was running for PM and that sort of stuff. He said, you know, we've got to have this flat tax and all that sort of stuff, and it was just going to be across the board. Mm. No, there was going to be no um, uh, tax-free threshold or anything like that. It was just going to be two percent across the board. Right. I don't see how it would work unless it was levied on gross income um, because it's it, it seems very low um, when you compare that to what you actually pay on your um, on your PAYG now. So we remain to, it remains to see the details on that one, but based on the other two that we just mentioned, I've got my suspicions about it. So. Oh, it's probably very wacky, yeah. Mm-hmm. Scott. You, on this podcast, have previously accused me of reprehensible ideology. Do you remember the instance? Ah, uh, oh, the Muslim, the uh, categorising Muslims and that sort of stuff, that was Correct. reprehensible. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so, dear listener, I had, you know, I had said it's... There's, the, the, uh, the category of Muslim is just too broad because within that are so many different things that they are completely different to each other depending on what mm. end of the spectrum they are. So, so I had proposed a social Muslim, Muslim light, a by-the-book Muslim and a killing-can-be-okay Muslim <laughs> as ways of categorising Muslims. And, and I said uh, it was wrong and I stand by that. Yes, <laughs> Simply by simply by categorising people. But anyway, I've been telling people about Gadsad, who I really mm. like. G-A-D-S-A-A-D, Canadian guy. And 
uh, I was with some friends just the other morning um, who listened to the podcast and I said, have you subscribed to Gad Sad yet? And they said, no, no, you keep talking about him, but I haven't yet. So I know there's lots of people out there who still haven't subscribed to Gad Sad on YouTube. So I'm one that, of those that hasn't. Well, well there so you go. I've got so, to do, yeah. so this is why I feel I've got a bit of a license to reproduce what he said in one of his YouTube videos, because I know lots of you out there haven't bothered yet. So I'm not a full acknowledgement to Gad Sad. He's produced this, and um, I want you to go and subscribe to him. So, um, so yeah. So, so this is. Um, this is the thing that he came out with, which is kind of related, Scott, to my um, to my social Muslim Muslim light by the book Muslim and killing can be okay Muslims. Okay, so <laughs> so he 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 does a lot of satirical stuff, and he describes um, uh, he describes a new religion which was discovered, um, the kill alls, and their holy book, the Killing Fields. Discovered by Professor Lobotomus Castraticus from an archaeological dig in Nebraska. He said what, the, uh, what they've discovered is that this um, religion, the religion of the kill-alls, uh, had seven major tenets. Uh, and I'll give you the first four. Uh, number one, anyone who does not accept all contents of this book, kill him, her, or Jia. Apparently, Scott, this religion was prescient in its desire to not be transphobic. <laughs> okay, that's, yeah. That's just so gold to start with, Gad. Rule number two. Anyone who does not become a kill-all adherent, kill him, her, or Jia. <laughs> Three. Anyone who speaks out against this book, kill him, her, or Jia. And number four, you are free to adhere to the rules in this book. If not, you should be killed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's rules one to four. Rule number five of of this religion of the kill-alls. Number five, make sure to go bowling on Tuesday afternoons. Tuesday afternoon, okay. Number six, never watch TV whilst wearing shorts. The Lord hates that. And number seven, never put relish on your hamburger, but I, your Lord, am indifferent to mustard or tomato (laughs) sauce. (laughs) You can see a big difference between reels five, six, and seven and the first four. You can, yes. So he he then uh, describes how there's been a typology of kill all believers um, worked out. And number one uh, group, straight up kill alls. They follow all seven laws. Number two, moderate kill alls. They ignore, interpret wrongly, or deny the existence of rules one to four, but instead practice rules five to seven exclusively. Uh, the third type, liberal kill alls. They. Ignore, interpret wrongly, or deny the existence of rules one to four, and follow only one of rules five to seven, and not always. That's what makes them liberal. And number four, cultural kill-alls. 
They ignore, interpret wrongly, or deny the existence of rules 1 to 7, but go about daily life unencumbered by the dictates of their faith. And he says here, The fact that groups 2, 3, and 4 exist doesn't mean there are various codified and accepted versions of kill all. There is just one which various people decide to practice more or less as they see fit. What a great analogy, Scott. It is a great analogy, yeah. Mm. But I still stand by the. Uh, I, I still stand by what I said at the time. <laughs> All right, I'll keep finding things to try and convince you that it's not <laughs> reprehensible to. to to break these people down into various subcultures. But anyway, if you like the sound of that, dear listener, look up Gad Sad and subscribe. I think he's got lots of good stuff to say. He's on YouTube, isn't he? Mm, Yeah, he doesn't have... And I think you can uh, access him via SoundCloud. um, Okay. But he doesn't have a regular sort of podcast. Um, Yeah, you access it via SoundCloud as well. Scott... um, article from the John Menadou blog um, dear listener if you're not subscribing to that then you're crazy like just go onto John Menadou's blog and hit the newsletter and um, god they've got some it good stuff really is very good mm. it you really want some is very strong good. independent journalism by experts in their field uh, it's very very good so uh, Trevor Cobold uh, has an article titled Labor Again Exposed as Morally Bankrupt on Private School Overfunding. And um, what he's saying is that Simon, Simon Birmingham, the Federal Minister for Education, is really highlighting that there's overfunding of some private schools and he's keen to do something about it. Exactly. And this is, this is, the, this is the bloody annoying thing about this, is that Labor should have embraced that and said yep okay we agree let's do something about it and there wouldn't have been any bitch fight i mean you would have had tony abbott and that sort of stuff carrying on but at the end of the day you could have got it through parliament it would have been dealt with and then it would have been over you know but instead tanya plitasek has decided to play politics with it Mm. So he, he's indicating we've got to do something about the overfunding of private schools, and she has said, well, which schools are going to lose funding? Like Exactly. She, she's playing yeah. political games instead of saying, you're right, and let's work together on a formula we can all agree to to mm-hmm. fix this system. She's now saying, well, which schools? She's playing wedge politics because she then Mm -hmm. has to go to those schools and those neighbourhoods and say, you guys are going to be worse off. It's despicable. From a a Labor opposition, a Labor shadow education minister, it's just appalling. I can't, I just, it beggars belief. See, the thing is, dear listener, there's been for too long now a situation where no school could be worse off. So these funding arrangements that have been in place for ages just aren't being dealt with. And so schools that had ridiculously good deals 20 years ago have still got ridiculously good deals. And someone like... Well, it looks like Simon Birmingham has got the balls to actually do something about it Exactly, and he's being held back by the Labor opposition. Mm. 
So you know, let, let, let's hope the bloody Greens come on board and say, right, oh, Birmingham, what have you got planned? Let's do it. Yeah. You know, because it, you know, well, Labor's written themselves out of it, haven't they? You know, it, it really is. It's appalling. It really is. It is appalling. Yeah, I mean, there's no other word for it. You know, it. Well, you come down here. Continuing overfunding of private schools is long-standing Labor policy. Overfunding stems from the Howard government's no-losers guarantee, whereby schools got to keep the funding they would have otherwise lost under the old SES funding model. The Labor government could have terminated this overfunding when it set up the Gonski Review. Instead, Julia Gillard instructed Gonski that no school would lose a dollar of funding. Mm. Now, that was crazy. You know, it was a... Gonski was a needs-based system... It was screaming out to be reformed, and they didn't do it. You know, crazy. The other thing in all this, Scott, is that, uh, you know, whilst individual schools are assessed based on their needs and funds provided to them, in theory, the Catholics are just given a lump sum which Mm. they then distribute to their schools as they see fit. So, in theory, Mm. the socioeconomic factors of their various schools are tallied up and the Catholics are entitled to X amount. But rather than ensuring that the individual schools get what they're supposed to get according to that formula, we simply give the Catholics a lump sum amount and trust them to distribute it correctly within their own school system. And I and, don't trust them, Scott. No, and, and you know, I mean, the, you, you don't trust them. And, you know, the Royal Commission has proven once and for all why they can't be trusted. Mm. And I think that, you know, that they ought to, that the, the government should take this opportunity to say, right, we're going to take over that. It's mm. no longer going to you in lump sums. It's going to go through us, you it's know. It's going to go like it does with everybody else. So you're not having exactly. a special, special deal. You don't deserve special favours and you've proven no. that you can't be trusted with anything. Mm. Well, we'll see on that one, Scott. Um, mm. Our friend Scott Morrison, he's back in the news <laughs> saying that he's we... He's really pushing it uphill, isn't he? <laughs> in a speech in London, he warned that Australia would be stranded unless it moved quickly to cut company taxes. He's arguing that if we don't cut company tax to match low-tax countries, uh, investors will choose to put their capital in other countries in preference to Australia because they pay less tax there. Complete and utter nonsense, Scott It Morrison. is nonsense, yeah. Three... You know... Uh, get on, Scott. You, know, you, you look at it here. 2015, Australian firms invested $109 billion in private capital expenditure locally compared with $22 billion overseas. Now, if the, the major overarching reason is the tax rate then they would have gone and invested in Ireland, in Singapore and that sort of stuff. But they didn't. They invested locally. Why? Because there are other factors involved other than the tax rates. So it really is crazy that they are continuing to push this because it's got no legs. It's crazy, you know. Our our biggest... um, Well, for most Australian firms, investing in another country to take advantage of lower taxes makes no sense. Their operations, customers, shareholders are here. This includes all our big oligopolies. The big four banks, Coles, Woolworths, Qantas and Virgin, 
They're not going to suddenly shift investment overseas because the company tax rate stays constant. Look, those exactly. guys, their business is in Australia. They're not yeah. They're not going to abandon the business and go, oh, we're not going to run a Coles and Woolworths now in Australia. Well, we'll go over somewhere else where the tax rate's better. Like, they'll try and artificially shift their profits, but they're not of going to Of course they will, but they're business. not going to, they're going to shift their business, no. And, and you and, know, that... that <clears throat> and some of the big companies that have tried to do some overseas business have found it doesn't, it's not that easy. So ANZ, mm. NAB and Telstra are all sort of exiting from some of their big overseas strategies anyway. So... So this article makes the first point is, number one, these companies, their business is Australian business. They're not capable of shifting that overseas. They're not going to suddenly stop running a coal supermarket because of the tax rate. Um, mm. Second part, foreign firms already invest extensively in Australia at our current tax rates. So... Um, well, we invested $22 billion offshore. Global companies invested $30 billion here. So at our current tax rates, we're still invest. There's more investment going here than going the other way. Um, exactly. Uh, 90% of applications to Australia's Foreign Investment Review Board came from countries with lower tax rates. So that was set number two. And number three... Corporate tax cut does not change the financial position of a single Australian investor thanks to our system of dividend imputation. So if you simply cut the company tax rate, people will pay more personal income tax through their dividends or through their personal tax because they get less mm. dividend imputation. So they'll be paying more personal tax. It won't change um, for individuals. So... The only people who would benefit from an Australian company tax rate would be overseas investors. Exactly. Yeah. He's... You know, you've got this this line here. I really like. We've got well, um, <clears throat> Australia has always been a net importer of capital and has little difficulty attracting it. We've got wealthy consumers, a highly educated workforce, a strong legal system, a great lifestyle. That's the reason. This is the reason. Forty five percent of our stock market is held by foreign investors. Yeah. Yeah. It really. Bloody Amazon's coming here. They know, well, they're probably planning not to pay any tax. That's the problem. But, well, they're probably not going to be paying any tax, yeah. But uh, but they're coming here They're coming here with our headline rate of 30% and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And they're planning on setting up and making money and that sort of thing. You know, you, you, don't, um, you don't come and set up where you plan on losing money, you know, unless you're artificially doing it. So he's just a neoliberal monster, Scott Morrison, who just thinks we're idiots. Um, <laughs> he does think we're idiots, doesn't he? Mm. <laughs> Scott, finally, um, Section 18C, a bad law that finds racism where there is none. This is a yeah. very interesting article, which follows on from my discussion with with Hugh right, Harris from last week. Um, I'm going to read a few bits here. My traditional Walpiri culture is governed by stringent rules regarding the sharing of knowledge and what women can and cannot say in public. But I believe my people need cultural reform to allow more open and honest discussion so that women and children victims of violence are no longer silenced. Activism once sought to champion freedom of speech but has now turned on those wishing to practice that right. Who, don't, who, who do not follow the left-green ideology. 
or simply if they are Caucasians addressing an issue relating to individuals who are not. Um, she says here, it is my human right to argue that Aboriginal people have never been given the privilege that those of the West have had the right to culturally evolve. We have been told we must remain in an unchanged culture. We have been exempt from constructive criticism, as has Islam in the West. So that's sort of along my lines last week, Scott, where I was saying that solving the Aboriginal problem, people in remote communities are just going to have to leave the land, but that required a change of culture, and there are people who want to enslave Aboriginal people into mm. their perception of a rigid, unchangeable culture. Exactly. It's evil. It is evil, yeah. And this woman here, Jacinta, is making exactly that case. Mm. They have to be allowed to evolve. She gives a very interesting example here. Um, in Alice Springs, a member of the public is far more likely to be randomly assaulted, physically or verbally, if they are perceived as white rather than black. Grossly offensive racist insults are used liberally in the streets of Alice Springs against white people. I have walked the streets of this town with my white friends to protect them from this sort of thing, but there have been no complaints under 18C. Both my mother, a senior Walpiri woman and former Minister of the Crown, and I have been vilified in obscene, sexist and racist terms by somebody who describes themselves as an Indigenous activist because we refuse to be told what to think and say. I've lost count of the many times I've been called a coconut and much worse. We have not once been insulted in racist terms by white people, not as far as we know. Mm. That's very, very interesting. It is really interesting. The whole article is very good. You know, it... And, you know, I was really surprised when I read down the bottom that she's an Alice Springs councillor and that sort of stuff and that she's from the Walpiri tribe, Walpiri tribe, you know. Mm. You know, she's... She's clearly an Indigenous woman. She's very intelligent and that sort of stuff, but she's written there and she has pulled it all apart and she said exactly what I think a lot of us are thinking, you know. She has said the way forward for our people is cultural evolution. Mm. Fantastic. That's you know, so she's, true. She's, she's dead right. You know, it, it's got to be able to evolve. Otherwise, we are sensing generations and generations to live as they always have and it's just not right you know mm. it, it's really got to be an evolving culture mm. Mm. there we go scott so um all right well we've we've reached our normal time scott so we um, have mm. uh dear listener um we'll be back next week same yeah, time, thank you same very much for listening. Yeah. <laughs> talk to you then <laughs> See you. Bye now. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and 
when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.